Today we continue our sermon series, Making Space for God, with something of a reversal, the description of God making space for us. It comes from Revelation, the last two chapters, and because the description is so long, I'm reading just some selected verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. I think by now most of you know I'm a Texan born and raised in Houston, Texas. What you don't know, I don't think, is that I'm the only person in my family from Texas. Everyone else is from Detroit, Michigan. My parents, Clayton and Dorothy, married, left family behind because they heard there were jobs in the South. And so they moved to Houston, where I was born. And so growing up in Houston, Texas, I had this special affinity for Detroit, Michigan, and I spent a lot of summers up there. No winters, thank you, but summers. And I thought it was a magical city. This is where cars were made. I mean, what boy wouldn't enjoy that? My grandfather had worked on the assembly line for more than 40 years, and so he took me to watch them making Mustangs. I mean, that was as good as it gets. There was also an amusement park on an island in the Detroit River, which was technically in Canadian waters. I mean, amusement parks are great when you're a kid, but to ride a boat to Canada? This was the best thing ever. There, there was Hudson's Department Store, largest in the country, 25 stories tall, 200 departments. I mean, you could get lost in there. It was great adventure. And then there was Saunders Ice Cream, a chain throughout Detroit. And most nights after dinner, I could convince my grandparents, let's go get some ice cream. Like I said, it was a magical time. And, and, in, and then came 1967. I was there in the summer. I was at my aunt's house this particular evening, and I was looking out the window over the sink in the kitchen, and I saw a tank go down the street a real army tank, and I thought, junior high kid, this is so cool, a tank. It took a long time to fully realize what was happening. This was a race riot. It had everything to do with race and poverty, second deadliest riot in US history. I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know at the time that Henry Ford had KKK leanings if not a member, he certainly had disdain for persons of color and for Jews. And nobody at the time 
could have imagined that the amusement park and Hudson's and Saunders would all go out of business. And no one could have even fathomed that by 2017, Detroit within the city limits would have 40 square miles of vacant property. That's the size of San Francisco. You hear stories of Detroit rebounding these days, and it's true, but it is in desperate need still of renewal. Aren't all cities in need of renewal? John, the author of Revelation, writes and addresses his book to Christians living in seven cities within the Roman Empire. And what he envisions is a new Jerusalem. That's because everybody knew what had happened to the one there in Israel. It lay in ruins. Occupied by the Romans, there was this revolt. Some of the Jews revolted and it was squashed. And not just squashed, they destroyed the temple, they felled trees, they demoralized the Jews there. Picture Kiev in Ukraine or Gaza. It was utter destruction and despair. And so John has this vision of the new Jerusalem. They might have expected what the prophets of old had said when the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. We'll rebuild this. God will help us rebuild this. We'll be back in the land. We will rebuild. But that's not John's vision. Not building the temple and the city from the ground up, but a new Jerusalem coming down from above. And not just any city. He calls it new. There's two words in Greek for new. One of them means, you know, like new of the same kind, but just new. The other one is new and improved. That's his vision. Cities in the ancient world, they had walls around them for security, of course. The new Jerusalem has walls around it, but the gates are all open because there's no more enemy and everybody can come in. Ancient cities had walls within them as well, segregating people by socioeconomic status, by nationality. John doesn't mention such a thing in the New Jerusalem. In ancient cities, it was very common for the streets to be dirty, human waste and trash. John says these streets, they, they glitter, they're gold. And of course, nightfall in cities is very dangerous, but there's no night. And there's no need for sun or moon. God is the light. God is the temple. Everything is as it should be. In this series, Making Space for God, for four weeks prior to today, we've talked about how do we make space for God. But it occurred to me, and theologians are really quick to point this out, it's a little bit presumptuous for us to talk about well, how do we make space for God in our lives without first acknowledging what John says, that God is making space for us. So thinking about the order of that priority, I went on a hunt. I wanted a parable by Soren Kierkegaard. You've heard Carl and I refer to him before. He's a Danish philosopher, Christian thinker, lived in Denmark. He wanted to challenge people on their priorities, and so he used parables. And I've got books full of his parables. I've got one whole book of nothing but his parables with an index and I couldn't find a single one that fit what I was trying to find. <laughs> so, in the spirit of Kierkegaard, I made up my own. Once upon a time, there was a king who issued a decree, a 
generous and gracious king, and he issued this decree that everyone in the kingdom could come live in the palace. This was a big palace. Everyone would have their own room. They would be safe and secure, and not just that. They wouldn't have to eke out a living and find food as they could. They would come to the royal feasts every night where there would be bread and wine and meat and vegetables. They could dine with the king. Every morning, servants were sent out to remind the citizens, all are welcome to come and visit the king anytime, an audience with the king. And of course, you're welcome to come to the feast. But, you know, the people were busy. They, they had things to do. And so hardly anyone ever showed up. And yet the king couldn't help himself. He kept looking out the window every once in a while, wondering if anyone was coming. It's not a complicated parable, but it does point out something. In the Bible, two times God creates a space for us. Two times. The first two pages, God makes this garden called paradise. That's what Eden means in Hebrew. And everything is perfect, but it doesn't quite go according to plan. And you know whose fault that was. But John, knowing that story on the last pages of the Bible, tells about another space God is creating. It's a city, but it, like the garden, has a river. And like the garden, it has the tree of life. This is what God is preparing. Between these two, this one and this one, are all the stories of us making places and building spaces. And some of it's impressive. I mean, there are amusement parks and ice cream shops and all kinds of things, but it never quite lives up to the city of God. You know, in our city, you can restore downtown, which is amazing. You can put up a colorful Ferris wheel. You could, you could build grand stadiums for the sports teams. But as long as any citizens live on the streets and go hungry, it's not the heavenly city. It doesn't measure up. To be clear, we're called to renew the city to repair the world, but we never quite get it the way God does. There's another philosopher turned Christian thinker, Pascal, mathematician, brilliant guy. He, when he talked about Christianity, he had a couple ideas that really caught on over the years. One of them you may recognize. He had this notion that humans are created with a God-shaped hole in their soul. You know how, like, sometimes after dinner when you say, well, I do have a pie-shaped hole. I think I can have some dessert. He said, we have a God-shaped hole, and you can't fill it up with anything else, even if you try. Nowadays, that's really debated. The new atheists say, ah, yeah, sure, whatever. It's debated. But here's, here's what I believe, that whether or not humans have a God-shaped hole, God has a human-shaped hole. Not that God needs us. God wouldn't be God, but God has, has found it in the divine heart to make space for us, loves us, wants us at the feast. 
a God-shaped hole. You, you know how nowadays more people in the country and the rural settings are moving to cities. Cities are growing everywhere, and, and there's a lot of concern in rural areas. In the ancient world, most people lived in the rural areas. There were those in the city, but most weren't. They, they kind of oriented their life that way. They had to go to offer sacrifices or pay taxes, sell their crops, that kind of thing. But they, they stayed in the countryside. Jesus, he wasn't a city dweller. According to the Gospel of Luke, he was born in a little village, Bethlehem, grew up in the north in a little village, Nazareth, not a big city. But there came a moment, according to Luke, in which he, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He, he said, it's time to go. He'd been as a boy. He'd been there before. But this would be different. And you know what happened in the city? The Romans arrested him and crucified him. But on the way, on the way, he told stories, parables. And it's probably the best collection there is. The parables of Jesus on the journey. And one of them, I know you know it, it's probably the most beloved. There was this father who had two sons. You know that one? When you hear that, your mind should go, oh my gosh, I've heard that before. There's, there's Cain and Abel and Ishmael and Isaac and Jacob and Esau. And everybody knows how these stories go. There's going to be the one boy. He's, he's kind of got his act together. And, and then there's going to be the other one that, that's kind of a hot mess. That's Hebrew, hot mess. <laughs> And you know how it's going to happen. And so this father had two sons, and the younger one, he took the father's estate and he squandered it, hits rock bottom. And the other one stays home, loyal. But later he admits, he felt like he was a slave working for his dad. But when the younger one comes home, the dad throws a feast because that's what he does every night. And he, and he says, both boys are welcome. Imagine that. Hopefully, there comes a time when with whatever son we most identify with, we recognize that we are welcome at God's table and in God's city. I think Dorothy had it right. Not my mom moving to Texas, that other one from Kansas. You know what she said, there's no place like home. <laughs> <laughs>